This is In-House Insiders, a podcast from the Association of Corporate Counsel, where you'll hear from the most interesting in-house legal professionals in Australia. On the show, we'll explore their stories, the challenges they've faced along the way, and the lessons they've learned that have defined their careers. I'm your host, May Ramsey, and I'm the Group Executive Legal Governance and Regulatory Affairs at Medibank. In today's episode, we're speaking to Amy Salapak, who is the Senior Legal Counsel at Curtin University. Amy's a really interesting person, and she's very passionate about ethics and culture. She actually completed a large study on a Fulbright scholarship in the US on the role of ethics and culture in the financial services sector following the global financial crisis. Today, you'll hear how Amy changed her career path early on. She'll break down some of the findings of her study and how ethics and culture impact in-house legal professionals. And we'll talk a bit about some recent personal adversity she's overcome. All right, let's dive in. Amy, welcome to the show and thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much, May. I'm very excited about this. Likewise. Now, I thought we might start off with just getting to know you a bit, and I was hoping you could talk us through how you got to where you are now. I started out with a journalism degree and then went on to do grad law and then spent the early part of my career in private practice. I then had the opportunity to move in-house, so to my first in-house role, and that was working here in WA at the Department of Health. One of my favourite roles that I've held in that, I was looking after all the country hospitals across the state and Western Australia has the largest rural public health system in the world. So that was really fascinating because I was working in the area of medical negligence litigation and also coronial inquest. So I spent a good part of my career in that role. I then had the opportunity to move to the Western Australian Corruption and Crime Commission I spent almost two years there and only a couple of weeks ago, I started my new role as Senior Legal In-House Counsel at Curtin University. Wow, what an amazing career already. You said you started off studying journalism and then obviously decided to change to the law. I understand you had a pretty interesting time in your journalism internship that led you to think about making a change. Are you able to talk us through what happened there? Yeah, absolutely. So I had the opportunity to have an internship at the West Australian, which is our main daily newspaper here in WA, uh, in my final year as a journalism student. And look, it was a great experience. I managed to get about 16 articles published, including one on the front page, which was super exciting. But having got to that point, I had studied media law, media ethics, and was really starting to think about the law and had this great aspiration to be a media lawyer. So from that, I decided to not pursue any sort of journalism jobs, but went on to study grad law and really haven't looked back from there. But in saying that, I think I learned a lot of skills in in studying journalism, which can be equally applicable to our role as lawyers. And some of them may be, you know, you need to have good writing skills, you need to be an effective communicator. You often have to not necessarily be an advocate for both sides, but certainly be aware of both sides of the story to adequately, you know, protect your client's interests so you can preempt arguments from the other side. And you also need to be a really good fact checker. 
So I found that all those skills, including the ability to write in a concise way and present a good argument, have really served me well in my career as a lawyer. It's so true that I think having some prior experience in some cases before starting the practice of law can be so helpful. As you say, having those crossover skills, you know, they're very much aligned. You mentioned something about media ethics. Now, I understand that you have completed a big study on ethics in the financial services sector. Was that from a philosophical perspective or was that more specific around the practice of law? No. So I have to say I'm a pragmatist. So so basically in 2018, I had a really unique opportunity to travel to the US on a professional Fulbright scholarship. So each year, the Australian Fulbright Commission gives one scholarship to a professional to investigate an issue that's relevant to Australian business or industry. So one thing that had always fascinated me was corporate scandals and why do they occur and really, you know, how can we prevent them from happening in the the future? So I went to the US with the project of looking into what were the changes in terms of the US financial services sector following the global financial crisis of 2008 in terms of regulatory processes and institutional processes and cultural changes within financial institutions that they put in place to promote more ethical behaviour. It was a very deep dive into what had occurred in the US and, and following that you had the backdrop of the Australian Banking Royal Commission unfolding in Australia. So it was really great timing for my project. But I I got to speak to people from the New York Fed, from judges in the Southern District of New York, which dealt with a lot of white collar crime. I got to speak to people from the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is the equivalent of our ASIC, as well as business executives, banking executives, lawyers, academics, and ethics and compliance professionals, because I really wanted to get a multidisciplinary view of how we improve ethics in the financial services sector, because over the last 10 or 12 years, it really has got a bad rap. So um, that part of my research is now obviously finished, but I'm incorporating in that into a doctorate of business administration, which I'm now studying part-time, but I'm comparing it with the outcomes from the Banking Royal Commission to get sort of a bit of a cultural insight as to how both countries have dealt with these issues. Because I think the upshot and what I'm really interested in is Commissioner Hain as well as executives in the US that have told banks, go and fix your culture. But what does that mean and how do we do it? And I really want to get perspectives from people on the ground who are working in those areas as well as regulating them to sort of inform best practice because it is there's, there's not a quick fix to this. So I, I think it does have relevance to law and other industries because you know, we've seen lots of corporate scandals that have not only been focused on the financial services sector, we've seen them in the media, we've seen them in sport and other business and industries. So I'm hoping that my research, once it's complete, uh, will have a broader implication to not only the, the business sector, but other industries as well. That sounds absolutely fascinating, Amy, and very, very pertinent to, I guess, the practice of law these days, particularly for in-house counsel. What were some of your findings when it came to lawyers working in-house, particularly in some of these large corporates? I think one of the things that's always interested me as well in terms of ethics and lawyers is 
mainly because our lawyers are held to such a high standard. So we need to be sort of the moral compass of an organisation and we're, he- we're held to a higher standard to be ethically accountable, if you like. The other thing that has interested me in terms of ethics and lawyers is that I know at least in my own career, I've often been asked to advise on situations which I, you know, coin as, as falling within the shadow of the law in that you're being asked to advise on something that either touches on the law directly, it may fall outside the law, but what you're advising on for your client is lawful and they can proceed with that course of conduct, but it may not be ethical. So there may be risks that that proposed course of conduct might put them on the front page of their daily newspaper or the Australian Financial Review, or there might be other risks such as like a reputational risk in the the broader industry. So I think from those perspectives, I think lawyers are are in a really unique position to sort of drive ethical decision-making. And I think from my impression of the Banking Royal Commission is also that, you know, lawyers are responsible for identifying legal risk, but they're now being asked to advise on other areas, such as your regulatory matters, you know, your broad risk and liability issues, but also looking at the compliance and governance aspects of an organisation. I I don't think it's enough to put your head in the sand and say that's not my remit because I think if you're in the organisation, you need to know what's going on because from my perspective, in order to fix a problem, you need to know why that problem has occurred. You're absolutely right. I certainly think that the role of in-house lawyers you've mentioned is much broader than simply providing legal advice. And I think you've touched on a few critical areas around regulatory and other you know, areas of compliance. If an in-house lawyer finds themselves in one of these sort of grey areas that you described, taking into account some of the research and findings from your research What's your advice to in-house lawyers on how best to handle what is, you know, at times a very potentially difficult and complex issue? I think lawyers need to lead from the front. So when they see something that is unethical or bordering on unlawful, but the conduct has not quite occurred yet, you have to speak up. And there's two things that come to mind when I say that. It's really that the standard that you walk past is the standard that you accept. And also, I'm mindful of being one of those people that my door is always open, but I don't want the perception that my mind is closed. So I think you need to firstly try and get a seat at the table so you're involved in those critical decision makings and you have the trust and respect of your executive team if you're not part of the executive, because as we know, some lawyers in their in-house roles wear two hats, so they could also perform the role of company secretary. So it's been very mindful to avoid those conflicts of interest, keeping proper documentation, putting advice in writing so there's something clear on the record. So if if the issue does blow up down the track, you've got clear sort of processes in place to ensure that you've given the correct advice and it's full and frank advice and was given at the right time. Because we do see sadly situations where lawyers are put in situations where they're pressured to give advice that might exploit the market or take advantage of an unrepresented party. And and whilst those steps may not be unlawful, the reputational risk can sometimes be a lot more trouble than a legal liability risk or a potential financial settlement. So I, I would just advise lawyers to be as diligent as they can in recording their position and having their voice heard and voicing those risks 
and also bringing issues to the executive when they see them that may not be contemplated by anyone in that room. But ultimately, if it is a situation where your values and your ethics are at risk and at odds with your employer, I don't think that there's great hope that that relationship is one that will continue and serve you well in your career. This is obviously an area that you've devoted a lot of time and energy to. What prompted you to, in the first place, undertake this research? I think that when I started my career, I was involved as in a commercial litigation team. I was involved in the collapse of the Opus Prime, so representing a class action of shareholders in regards to that. So to me, that touched on sort of some unethical conduct that had occurred in, in that scenario, in the fallout of that organisation. I think then we went into the global financial crisis. So we obviously saw lots of conduct here and across the world where there had been corporate collapses and financial settlements and the decimation of some organisations' reputation because they'd engaged in conduct or misconduct or corruption that had ultimately resulted in their demise. I think I'm passionate about it because it's happening too often and I think a lot of these things can be avoided and that's why I'm so interested in culture because I think culture, having a good culture really eliminates a lot of those risks or mitigates those risks for your organisation. But culture is a very hard one to put your finger on. It's not just, you know, how you go to work and how you feel about the organisation. To me, I look at it in a, in a threefold. I think it's um, focusing on your people, who you employ, who you hire, who you fire, how you discipline people within your organisation. I think it's to do with your processes. Do you have an ethics code of conduct? Are those processes enforced? And I think it's also looking at about the performance of an organisation. So we saw from the Banking Royal Commission that there's a lot of focus on remuneration and how we remunerate and reward people. And to me, I think there needs to be a greater focus not just on the top executives of an organisation. I think there needs to be a lot of focus too on the individual employees because sometimes, as one of my interview subjects explained to me quite carefully in the US, an executive getting a... $10 million bonus and the difference between a $10 million bonus and $11 million bonus may not be a lot to them. But for someone who's a middle management employee that's focused on sending their kids to private schools and paying their mortgage and their bills, you know, there might be a greater incentive for them to pull out all the stops, particularly if there's a culture within that organisation that's win at all costs, to engage in shady behaviour to make sure that they get their bonus so that they can pay for those things. So I challenged the notion that a lot of people refer to being as tone at the top. I think it's tone at the top, it's mood in the middle, and it's buzz at the bottom. And you have to be across your organisation, you know, up, down and sideways to make sure that if you've got problems within your culture that you take active steps to rectify that and that won't happen overnight. But you have to be committed to that process and sometimes that can be quite confronting. So I think that this is a problem that we can ultimately, you know, correct and and work on. It will be an ongoing issue for a lot of industries and some industries are are more affected than others. But I'm passionate about it because I think lawyers and particularly in-house lawyers have a really important role to play in dealing with those cultural risks and opportunities. Thank you, Amy. And I totally agree with you as well. You know, each of us, whether we're in-house counsel or, frankly, just employees of the company, I think have a role to play, as you say, in setting the culture and the tone and leading by example. 
You mentioned that your Fulbright scholarship research was focused, as you said, on the 2008 financial crisis. But, you know, we did, obviously, as you've also referred to, have our own Hain Royal Commission here. Were there some parallels between what you found through your research in the US and then following up with the Hain findings? What were those parallels, if there were any? I, yeah, so, so definitely. Uh, I think the biggest one would probably be the remuneration and compensation structures. They, they tend to drive, well, they can in many organisations, drive culture and drive performance. And where you've got also organisations that don't have good disciplinary type structures, you often find that your high performance get free passes to engage in whatever conduct they like, whether that's mistreating their peers or exploiting market products to get an unfair advantage over others. So I think that that's a a big area that needs some focus. Also, there's a difference between Australia and the US in that a chairperson of a board can also be their CEO, whereas in Australia there, there tends to be a delineation of those roles which is my preference because I think having one person wear those two hats obviously creates a a huge potential for a conflict of interest. But looking at the role of boards and and what role they play in driving ethical conduct, being aware of their risk, what decisions they decide to make. So I think they're probably two big ones. The other thing that I found quite fascinating is that the US only prosecuted one person after the US financial crisis which is huge because there was a lot reported in terms of individual engaging in corruption, unethical conduct, misconduct, and that too before the Hain Royal Commission it was a common element that we had in Australia is that we had very few prosecutions against individuals or very few against companies. So uh, they're two things that we share in common and I think that if you don't have a proper regulator that is willing to take cases to court and enforce the rights and responsibilities that have been given to them, we don't have any effective deterrence. Uh, So that will be a really interesting thing to look out for. The US has almost like a deferred prosecution scheme. So there were question marks over how effective that was in companies who had been found guilty of wrongdoing in a corporate sense paying a fine to confidentially settle the matter on terms and for it to go away. I know that there's uh, legislation in the works about bringing a deferred prosecution agreement system in Australia. Uh, I'm excited to see what that will look like because I think that enforcement is, is a massive area to deterrence and it's not only enforcing companies because companies can have huge insurance policies and, you know, often some of them see a penalty or a fine as being cost of doing business, but it's also looking at individual liability and director's duties and appropriately enforcing those cases against individuals where they're warranted and and sometimes running a case because it's needed. We need some public trust and confidence that our regulators are doing their job and they're, you know, they're protecting us as consumers from unlawful and unethical behaviour. Well, it certainly sounds like a rich ground for your further doctorate that you're undertaking. I might change tact now, and I understand that you've had some recent struggles. I was wondering whether you were happy to talk about those. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Last year was quite a, a challenging year for me. In July, I was diagnosed with uh, dysphonia, which means a voice disorder. So to take that back a step, in February, I travelled with my mum to the Philippines. Mum runs a, a medical mission in the Philippines, so she takes a volunteer, a team of volunteers to the Philippines to operate on children with cleft palates and facial deformities, and, and they do that twice a year. So I went up with her in February so at that point in time, there were uh, some sort of murmurings as to COVID and what it was, but it was still a, a relatively new concept in Australia. But we're visiting third world hospitals and I had about 14 flights and through Changi and about 20 days after I got back, I got really, really sick and, you know, I developed respiratory symptoms and so unfortunately, at that time, they were only testing COVID travellers that had flown in internationally for symptoms that had arisen in 14 days. There was a suspicion form that I didn't have COVID and I was treated with other means. And as the months went on, I got sicker and sicker. And at the end of April, I had lost my sense of smell. I'd lost my sense of taste. And I'd also was starting to lose my voice. In July, I was diagnosed with dysphonia, which basically meant there was so much inflammation that my vocal cords were not working. So that was me basically looking down the barrel of thinking, well, what do I do if I, if I can't work as a lawyer and I can't use my voice and I can't do my research? And, you know, I love talking at conferences and I'm a social person and I love engaging with my peers. What does that let me do? It was terrifying and it was really just quite soul-destroying because there was nothing that I could do to improve the symptoms. You, you just had to wait and have time. And I worked with a awesome speech therapist. So I often spent my days staying at home, blowing bubbles through a straw into water to try and, and various other exercises to try and get my voice back. But by the end of November, I started to get my voice back. I started to go back into the workplace and I was working again. But it certainly just gave me appreciation of those within our community that are affected with dysphonia. But I think there's very little people that would truly appreciate what dysphonia is and the impacts of those within our community and their caregivers on what that has on their everyday life. What an incredible story. And thank you for sharing that, Amy, because it's a very personal one. What were some of the challenges that you faced, uh, particularly during that period when you couldn't speak at all? And then as you were moving to obviously regain your speech, I expect that was another experience. But maybe starting with when you couldn't speak, what were some of the challenges? Oh, well, that was, that was hard. It was hard from a work sense. As I said, we're working from home, so I was able to conduct my communications via email, which was great. And I had a very supportive work team at that time. But it, it was hard because uh, there was a period there that I was advised not to speak at all for a few weeks, not to even try and sort of push through because that would give it a, a true opportunity to try and just get the inflammation down and, and hopefully have some positive impact. So I was literally walking around the house and at that point in time because we're in lockdown, I was really only having contact with my mum and dad, but really walking around with a pen and paper, communicating on paper and that was just so challenging and so different and so not what I was used to because I love talking to people. But that that's what I had to do as part of my rehabilitation. Even ordering a cup of coffee was really hard. People just couldn't understand what you were saying. People often thought I was sick, so they avoided me because I had 
this kind of croaky voice. One of my close girlfriends described it as sounding like Patty and Selma from The Simpsons, which I thought was hilarious, <laughs> but um, it, it, it was just trying to get through that. And then when it did start to improve and I got some vocal capacity back, it was quite limited. So I had a lot of vocal fatigue. I couldn't engage in any research interviews during that period of time because it, it just wouldn't have been possible. So I think it just gave me real insight as to how people cope with it. And I'm glad I went through it and I'm glad I had a, a, the experience to sort of get through that because it, it did test my resilience and I think it made me a stronger person. But there's a lot of people that I've met that have to deal with dysphonia on a day-to-day basis and the challenges that come with that. Wow, what a year. You know, the rest of us just had to cope with a a bit of lockdown here and there. But yes, you've shown true resilience. Now, I'm going to uh, change pace here a bit and move to the quickfire questions section. Please feel free to have a bit of fun. This is is the fun part of the interview. (laughs) We'll see how we go. The first question is, if you met your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give them? Take every opportunity you can get and run with it. Sounds to me like you already did do that, Amy, from what, from what I've heard. It's fantastic. Uh, next question. What is the one skill you really had to develop through your in-house role? I think understanding financial stuff. I'm not a finance person, so understanding sort of those aspects of the business definitely is something I've had to work on. And it's interesting you say that. I think a lot of in-house lawyers find that as well when they first move in-house, but fantastic to pick up another skill. Talking about skills, where do you go to upskill? I would typically, I do a lot of CPDs through ACC and other professional bodies that I'm a member of. But one thing that I really like to do, and perhaps this is the inner nerd in me, I like to give conference talks on things that I don't really know much about. So I've got the opportunity to do a deep dive in there, learn all about it, and then add my sort of perspective or spin on a particular topic and then have the opportunity to present it. So that that's one thing that I do to learn. What a perfect answer, Amy. Thank you for the plug for ACC CPDs, but also you've now just nominated yourself as a, a speaker for one of our future CPDs. <laughs> Moving on to who's someone you really admire? I'd have to say from Australian perspective, I have a lot of respect for Turia Pitt. The adversities that she's gone through and the way that she's turned her life around and become such a positive and inspirational role model for a variety of different people. I find her to be incredible. And from an international perspective, I would say Christine Lagarde, the former head of the IMF. I think she is an incredible person if you read about her and what she likes doing in her personal time, but also coming into the IMF at a time where it was in crisis it took a lot to turn it around and, and the things that she did to do that. So I would say that she's one of many, but I do have a lot of respect for her. Well, two amazing people by the sounds of it. I know a lot about Turia. In fact, she's been a keynote speaker at some ACC conferences, but I'll have to look up Christine Lagarde. What's one item on your bucket list? To give a TED Talk. <laughs> I have a feeling that's going to happen very soon, Amy. <laughs> What's your favourite hobby? I love swimming. I really love swimming. It's the one thing that I do that I can completely switch off from and I just love being around water. I find it really calming. Well, that's a great hobby to have in WA as well. What are you reading at the moment? 
I am reading Too Big to Jail, which again, it's a bit nerdy, but it's a book written by an American academic that looked at why there were so few prosecutions in the US following the US financial crisis. So I find it really interesting. It's probably not everyone's bedtime reading, but... I might wait for your synopsis on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Happy to provide a summary. (laughs) Thank you. And finally, what is the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? Play with my dog. I've got a bit of a furry family here, so I've got a a chocolate lab crossed with a Rottweiler and two cats. So I usually find getting up and playing with them is, is really fun to do in the morning. What a fantastic way to start your morning. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for joining us. It's just been a real pleasure to get to know you and learn about, you know, what has been an amazing pathway to becoming an in-house lawyer, all about your passions around ethics. And I look forward to the publishing of your doctorate. And finally, the fact that you were willing to share, you know, what has been no doubt one of your more difficult years last year and the amazing resilience that you've shown. All of that has together has provided a really inspirational session. So thank you, Amy. Oh, thanks so much, May. Like, I've really enjoyed talking with you today and I'm grateful for the opportunity and, and thank you. Our pleasure. You've been listening to In-House Insiders, a podcast about the stories, challenges and lessons learned by Australia's top in-house legal professionals. In-House Insiders is produced by the Association of Corporate Counsel. ACC's purpose is to support the professional and business interests of in-house counsel through information, education, networking and advocacy initiatives. I've personally been an ACC member for 15 years and I continue to remain a member for the fantastic peer networking opportunities I get and the access to tailored CPDs that cater for every stage of an in-house lawyer's career. If you're not a member already, you can join me and over 45,000 other in-house counsel from around the world. For more information about ACC or to join, please visit the website acc.com. This has been In-House Insiders. I'm May Ramsey and I'll speak to you next time.